I mean, there's the times to repent. There's the times to celebrate. And uh, it's good. How many of you have uh, sensed the presence of God? Now, you know what He wants? He wants that to be normal. Not the rarity. And so that means that we play a major part in that. He responds to us. And so we need to invest in worship, right? We need to to not become weird, okay? But not become afraid. And to learn how to enjoy worshiping Him. Now, we need to know how to do that when no one's around, when we're all by ourselves in our prayer closet to worship and love on Him in prayer. That's, that must be a, a daily thing that we do. But there's a whole different way He meets with His people. And He wants His people to love being with Him. That they look forward to it. That Sunday morning is like, oh God, I can't wait to get there. And it's Monday. You know, you're longing for, for, for the time you can be back in His presence with the saints and worship. And yes, like I said, you have times of repentance. You have other times of celebration. And we should not settle for the mundane. Right? Because what happens in the mundane is we just start getting casual in, in our faith and nothing stirring, nothing firing us up. We need to be a people that truly have a passion. Now, you know, a lot of the songs we were, we've been singing, the world will not understand. They think we're nuts. Okay, you want a fire? You want a fire? You want to you rain? You know, I mean, they don't comprehend that. Of course, it takes becoming a Christian and understanding the language of the Bible and so on to begin to comprehend what's being said there. But those are some beautiful thoughts that should really be defining our life. Not something that is just, uh, you know, occasionally there, but something that defines us. Um, I do covet your prayers. We will be leaving a week from Wednesday and be gone for a couple of months ministering in the New England states. We'll be back. Then at the uh, end of October, beginning of November, um, and we do have a date. We'll be speaking here at the beginning of November, the middle of November. November will be gone again, but to have to fly down to Texas for the wedding of our daughter. So, uh, so that will be uh, good and interesting, and so on. So, um, I guess I'm doing the ceremony. I was hoping just to walk her down, and I wouldn't have to do anything. But you know, I guess I still got to do more work. Kids are work. Yeah. <laughs> can I say, can I hear amen from the rumbles? <laughs> There's some experience, yes. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. And Lord, we do thank you for your presence. Lord, I remember one of the things that uh, Charles Finney said in one of the books I've read of his. I can't remember which one, but this is one of the reasons why revival stops is because people become used to the Holy Spirit and they take Him for granted. Lord, may we understand the tremendous, phenomenal gift that You would make Yourself known to us. We do not have a right to it, God, except as being Your children. And you want us to have that right of your presence. But Lord, you call for us to invest our lives into this. Lord, we just thank you so much that you have been here. And that you have been that wind that's been blowing on us, stirring us, awakening us, O God. Because you have something greater for us. What 
is a day of small things is to become something that is much bigger, that you'll accomplish much, much more as you awaken us as your people, as you stir us, as that fire begins to burn in us, you become a God that will do the miraculous through those who are willing to believe and step out in faith, Lord. And may you find a people that you could do that through. In the wonderful name of Jesus, amen. We are going to look at a prophecy that comes out of Isaiah 64. And we're actually going to be looking in Luke chapter 4, which is the fulfillment. And the thing about prophecy is there are some prophecies that have only one fulfillment. That's it. There's no way you can take it any other way. And if you try to do that, then you're somehow abusing the Word of God. There are other prophecies that can have multiple meanings, or let's say, applications. I believe what we're going to look at is one of those settings. The prophecy itself specifically, directly relates to Jesus, okay, to Messiah. But I believe what we're going to look at applies to the church as well, of what God wants to do in and through the church. And so we're going to look at this at how it, how it relates to us and what God wants to do uh, through us. Because as He awakens us, as He stirs us, and that there, he, He's not doing it just so that we have an enjoyable time with Him, though He loves doing that. It's for a greater purpose than just ourselves, that He might do a work in us, that it can be working through us to touch a perishing world. We are to take what we get in with the body of Christ and take it to a dying world. And we are to make a real difference. And the fire that he's talking about is not just something that we, we sit and we enjoy and say, oh, isn't this wonderful that the fire of God's in my heart? Because the evidence of the fire is something that's going to go through us and begin to touch other lives. It's not a selfish thing. It was never meant to be a selfish thing. It is to be something that is freely received and freely to give out. And when we don't give it out, when he gives it freely, eventually it corrupts in us. Not the Spirit of God, but what was meant to be a blessing now begins to stagnate in us. And do the opposite of what God wanted. So it has to be something that we start learning how to give away. So Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. On, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. You notice that? As was his custom. Jesus went to church. He didn't miss it. All right? So I think that's a pretty good custom. Of course, we need to be in a good church. This is a good church. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, uh, let me just say something here before I move on. Just To me, this is pretty astounding. Because, because this event right here was orchestrated before the world even began. Before time even began. Because how the Jews did the, do the reading in their synagogues, they have a regular cycle that they go through of what they read. And so Jesus came into the synagogue on the day that the scroll of Isaiah was going to be given. And the right is of a male Jew, of an adult male Jew, that he had the right in right standing to be able to read from that scroll. And so Jesus went and took the scroll and went to this portion of Scripture. And so it's just astounding that... That timing, perfect timing, God doesn't make a mistake with it. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to acclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And I guarantee you, every person in that synagogue, their mouth was, had dropped wide open. They were just in utter astonishment. So Jesus was either going to be telling the truth or an absolute liar, right? Either he was the fulfillment of it, or he wasn't. And of course we know he was, because he's going to demonstrate it. He's going to demonstrate it again and again with healing multitudes and all the miracles and casting out devils and, and, and the, just the, the move of the Spirit of God that flowed through him. And the demonstration of it was going to be more than sufficient there. But he says, it's happening right now. I'm the fulfillment of this. It's going to begin now. But yet this, when we look at this, this is the mission that God has given the church. To take the name of Christ and His salvation to a perishing world. So what is right here, the Spirit of the Lord, is to be on us. It's to be on us as God's people. For what purpose? To anoint us to preach good news to the poor. Yes, that's for the preacher. And if a preacher gets in a pulpit and doesn't preach on the anointing, he needs to resign his, his position and give up his credentials. Now, I'm not kidding about that. There's tons of preachers out there who couldn't preach themselves out of a paper bag because they don't have anointing. And you know why they don't have anointing? Two reasons. Because they don't have a prayer life and they're cowards. They're afraid to preach the truth because if they preach the truth, the people will leave. Scary. That's a whole other message, though. <laughs> there's only two things we can give as a church. You understand? There's only two things we can give. We can give what the world has to offer. And that's what's going on big time in the church. They're trying to make themselves like the world accommodating the worldly ideas and everything else, trying to incorporate the whole thing to it. You see, the world has a lot of talent. And, you know, you can get the talent into the church and have talent shows and all the different things that can go on to try and, and, and be like the world to attract them by worldly ways, worldly entertainment, worldly things. But I hate to say it, the world can do it better than church. So we just try and copy the world then, in essence. Or we can give them what the world can't give them, the Holy Spirit. See, we're going to either give the, we're either going to become like the world to try and win the world, which never works and can't work, or we're going to become a people that are truly spirit-filled to give the world what they can never get any other place than truly spirit-filled churches. Right? And that's what we are to be. We are to be the people that are the bearers of the presence of God. Nobody else has it except the true followers of Jesus. And especially those who understand the work of the Holy Spirit and have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That they can become the people that are bearers of the presence. And they are to take the presence of God into a dying world and demonstrate the reality of this God. So that when you go out, you are preaching the good news to individuals under the anointing. You're witnessing, you're telling them about Jesus, and we need to be people that are trying to walk in that anointing on a constant basis so we have something to give when we do witness to somebody. When we go to tell somebody about Jesus, that there's anointing on us, that the words we speak can pierce through their darkness and begin to really penetrate their heart. And we may not know what goes on. We may just speak some words, and they go on, and we don't know what the hound of heaven, as I touched on this morning, 
what the hound of heaven is going to do with those words that were spoken as he begins to press it home in their conscience. But we need to be a people under the anointing of God and refuse to give the world what the world already has. And to give them the only thing that we should be trying to give them, which is the presence of God. Let's take a little bit of time and look at how Jesus did ministry, because I think this is important when we begin to look at this whole prophecy. And I'm just going to touch on a few verses. There's tons of verses, okay? I'm going to only touch on a few to try and press home my thought here. If we are going to do the ministry God's way, then we need to look at how God did ministry. And we need to make sure we don't do ministry the world's way and try to just adopt the world's concepts of, of growth and, and, and expansion and so on, try and do that and add it to the church and think that's going to be what God wants. I don't care if you have a church of 40,000 people. If it's not preaching the gospel, if God's not in the house, the church is an absolute failure, the pastor's a failure, irregardless of how popular he is. Now, I've named names before and got in some serious trouble doing it because they don't understand that you can have a huge church. And if God's not there, it's, it's a failure. But, you know, you can have a little church. And if you have God show up, you have a majority now. <laughs> you have the biggest, the biggest, right? The uncontainable God. And so if he says, I like that church, then you are in a good church. Because he is giving his approval by saying, I am here because these people are wanting me and they are preparing the way for me to come to them. They are preparing the way that I could visit them by getting their lives where it should be. And so we need to look at Jesus. We need to see for a moment how he did ministry. We're just going to be traveling a little bit through the Gospel of Luke here. In uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus baptized too. Now here, pay attention to this next point. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now notice that, and this is the only gospel that, that presents the baptism with this addition, that when he prayed. The other ones just say, when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down and the Father spoke from heaven. But it's this one that gives us a little more information that the Holy Spirit and the Father spoke when Jesus prayed. That's why it is so utterly and absolutely necessary for there to be a praying church to see the work of the Holy Spirit. A prayerless church will not see the move of God. Will not. It's not going to happen. And so there again, you can go back to the church of a thousand or forty thousand and ask them what kind of prayer meeting they got. I'm, I'm being serious here. You can have mega churches with thousands and thousands of people and they have a prayer meeting. If they have a prayer meeting, they'll have maybe a dozen people show up. You see, we don't understand the importance of prayer, but if a church is going to walk and live under the anointing of God, they've got to do it under the place of prayer. In that place of prayer, in the place of seeking God as individuals and then as a body of believers. It's an absolute necessity. And so as he prayed, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended, and you have a beautiful expression here of the Trinity. But I'm not here to talk about the Trinity tonight. This is, if I might say it like this, the inauguration of Christ's ministry. This is the beginning. How did the beginning of his ministry begin? With the Holy Spirit coming down out of heaven. Now, 
Jesus was God incarnate, and there was, I don't believe there was any time in his life he had more of the Holy Spirit than at any other time. Okay? I mean, it's just, don't ask me how some of this stuff works. I don't know. I can't figure the Trinity out. Okay? I believe it because it's good Bible, but I can't tell you how it all operated. Jesus didn't receive the Holy Spirit at that time. There was complete perfect unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. It's just the Spirit came down for what? A testimony to all the people that saw this and heard the voice from heaven. And it was a testimony that people began to talk about. And it was a testimony that said, something is beginning. Something has changed in Israel right now. And so he began his ministry under the auspices of the Holy Spirit. And you know, it is really sad. It is really, really sad how many churches out there the Holy Spirit isn't present. Hasn't been present. Hasn't been present for years. Maybe never because they just will not allow any move of the Holy Spirit. They will not embrace it. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. So here he is. You have his baptism, and his baptism takes place. The Holy Spirit is it comes down on him, and the Father speaks from heaven. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. You understand? He was full of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. What waited for him in the wilderness? What was in the wilderness? A confrontation with the devil, right? I mean, I, I think, I'll just be honest here, I, I think sometimes we were, we were rebuking the devil from a situation that God's putting us in the midst of so we can learn how to fight. And we're just wanting a happy life, so we don't want the battle. We're trying to get rid of the battle instead of understanding. It says, okay, son, I put you in here. I gave you the armor. I gave you the sword and the shield. Go to battle. Begin to fight instead of whining. And I'll tell you what, I hate to say it, I've whined way too much in my life. Okay, doesn't do any good, never has, never, ever has. But you know what, was, what does do good? When you grab that sword and the shield and you begin to run at the devil. So he had 40 days of temptation. We are only told about three temptations on the very last day. 40 days of it. So we don't know what those other temptations, we don't know what any of that was about. But we know he was absolute victor. Absolute victor. And so in the 14th verse, it says, Jesus returned from Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Did news spread about Jesus because he had a confrontation with the devil? Not at all. You see, they didn't know about that. This is something we were given information that was put in the Word of God for us, but the people of Israel didn't know about that confrontation. What was it that started grabbing the attention of the people? And that's the thing we've got to see, because until this point, you had John the Baptist. John the Baptist had stirred the pot. You know, some theologians say upwards of a million people may have heard John preach. However many were baptized, we have no way of knowing. The pot had been stirred, revival had broke out, so they weren't even looking for Jesus. But there had to be a John the Baptist for there to be a Jesus. And so then Jesus comes on the scene. And what made everything different? John never did one miracle. He preached under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, but he never did one miracle. But now Jesus comes on the scene, and under the power of God that was inherent in him, signs and wonders began. And that's what happened. 
In John chapter 3, verse 34, it says, For God gives Jesus the Spirit without limit. You see, there's no limit. You want to know why there's no limit to the Holy Spirit? Not just that He was God. Yes, we could have the circular argument there, but that's not, let's, let's try and make this in a, in a thing that we can understand, a way that we can understand. God gave Him the Spirit because there was nothing in His life that grieved the Father. Nothing. There was no sin. There was no rebellion. There was absolute perfect obedience, absolute perfect love. Nothing to grieve the Spirit of God. We're going to look at the idea in a few minutes just about grieving Him so that we can understand some of the dynamics of it because it causes more trouble than we understand, not just in our life but in the body of believers. And so what takes place now is Jesus starts giving evidence of the authority that He has. He starts giving evidence of the power that was in Him. And in uh, verses 31 through 37, you have the account where Jesus casts a demon out of an individual in a synagogue. And the people were amazed. They were amazed because he says he has authority. He has power. Not like all the other people. Not like the Pharisees and the other teachers of the law that have no power. There's something about this Jesus that is different. We have heard John. We heard him preach. And we knew something was special about him. But this is like taking it, just elevating it to a, a greater degree. Now with power, signs and wonders and the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, miracles themselves do not save people. But they open the eyes to the people that need saving. It helps them to see their need of a Savior. It helps them to see the reality that there's a God. And that our God is the true and only God that there is. That all the other supposed gods of this world are not true. We are to give the evidence of it, not just in argument. Because argument is not enough. We must have the power to be able to demonstrate the reality that God is God. That who we serve is a true and living God and that there's no maybes about it. There's no competition. And so then what happens? There's so much more on the, on the miracles of Jesus and so on. I'm not going to take the time to go through it. I just want to try and show how Jesus did ministry. Now, if Jesus did ministry that way, who does the church think they are to do it any other way. What arrogance of the church to say, no, we're not going to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. We want everything decent and in order. Of course, decent order means dead. So you can go to a cemetery and everything is decent and in order there. Right? There's no life, though. You know what I'll take? I'll take the decent and in order that Jesus brought. And I've never yet seen a movie about the life of Christ that satisfied me with what I really think went on. Because what do they do? They show a stoic Jesus preaching a stoic message, more like teaching or having a little talk to everybody, and to a stoic crowd that's sitting there intellectually nodding their heads. And that is nothing like it. Not even close to it. I mean, to me, that is just, you have just went and disgraced the reality of who Jesus is by giving this image that is not real. There was holy chaos. You don't have blind people seeing and they're just going, wow, well, that was nice. I mean, you understand? You don't have people that are lame and it's just, just you know, lackadaisical about it. You have people jumping and leaping and shouting and screaming and their joy and all this ruckus that's going on and Jesus just having a grand old time. He loves it. 
You understand? He loves doing that. And so he wanted this continued into the church. And so what do you have? You have the day of Pentecost. That's not when the church began. The church didn't begin on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was where the church was empowered to do what God called the church to do. But the church became the church in the resur- after the resurrection. And Jesus was, was there with his apostles and he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was the indwelling Holy Spirit where salvation really comes. They had entered now into the New Testament era, into the New Testament where people were now being saved. The power of God breaks out through them. 3,000 added in one, in one message, one sermon, 3,000 added. I'll tell you what, I'd like to preach a sermon like that. Right? I'd like to preach a sermon like that where you see that kind of evidence. And so, what is it that God wants? He wants the verifiableness of His presence and power. I mean, you understand what I'm just saying there? He wants it verifiable. He wants evidence. He wants proof. So Jesus gave proof after proof after proof after proof of who He was. And He gave proof of the reality that God is actively working by healing and setting people free. And so God wants that same power operating through the church, that same power operating through our lives. And He is not a respecter of persons. Yes, He gives some gifts to particular people in particular ways that's different. And I'm not going to take the time to go into that. But God wants His people to rise up and become a people that are willing to be used of God to go out there in the perishing world and begin to believe for the signs and wonders to work through them, just like it did in the early church. We need to reclaim the book of Acts again. And say, God, this needs to be done in our time. It will never be the same because that was back in the Roman Empire in Palestine, you know, 2,000 years ago. That will never happen like that. But the same life can happen. The same power, the same authority can happen. Because God has not changed. And we are told that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you look at the history of Korea... It actually is a, is a very painful history. When you look at it on a map, you have, you have the peninsula of Korea. And on one side you have Japan. On the other side you have China. And you know where, uh, where China and Japan fought many of their wars? Korea. And so Korea would be one moment under the rule of China, another Roman moment under the rule of Japan, and they brutalized the people, brutalized them. I mean, it was just, it was a terrible, terrible situation to be a Korean during these hundreds of years that went on as they were trying to, to battle over it. So this was a people that had been really beat down. They were not originally Buddhist, but because of the influence uh, that came from outside, they, were, they became a Buddhist people, at least in name, Something like 99% Buddhist. And then God showed up. Today, over 50% of Korea is Christian. Because of what God started doing in 1907. Revival broke out. The Korean revival is an astounding 
account of revival. Astounding account. I'm going to give you just a couple of stories as we go through this message. Let me give you the first night. This is the eyewitness account of, of Reverend Graham. He said, man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep, and then throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fist in perfect agony of conviction. My own cook tried to make confession, broke down in the midst of it, and cried to me across the room, Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? And then he threw himself to the floor and wept and wept and almost screamed in agony. Sometimes after confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer. And the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping. We would all weep. We could not help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 a.m. with confession, weeping, and prayer. God stepped down. I guarantee you everybody in that room knew that God showed up. The tangible, verifiable reality that God reveals Himself. And that's what God wants again today. That's what He wants in our lives, to see the reality of the Holy Spirit operating and working through us. And so I want to take a couple of minutes and look at the challenge of grieve not the Spirit. And so Paul gave us a command. This isn't a pretty please, it's a command, all right? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There are so many things I could touch on this. I'm just going to touch on a few and be able to move on and get to the prophecy itself and look at how that's to play out in our own lives. But we grieve the Spirit through self-will. So you want to stop a move of God in a church, become self-willed and want it your way and not His way and don't let Him move and you're guaranteed to get what you want then, which is nothing. It's just how it works. If you want to see a move of God, it comes down to becoming obedient to the Holy Spirit. Obedient to what He wants. Obedience to what He's desired, what He's speaking to us, that we begin to obey Him. Now, do we have to learn that voice? Absolutely. Can sometimes when people start learning how to, to respond to the Holy Spirit, can they sometimes do some strange things? Yes, but that's why you have a pastor to help the church to learn how to flow in the Spirit of God and learn how to have right freedom and to enjoy it, to love it. You know, the more we see His presence, the more enjoyable it is to walk with Jesus, the more we just want His nearness more and more because we see how wonderful and good He is, and we just long for it. And then we long for others to know the joy of this living relationship with God. So here's, to me, an absolutely astounding verse. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 30, By myself I can do nothing. Who's Jesus? God incarnate. And yet God incarnate said, by myself I can do nothing. What was he doing? He was modeling for us what it means to be a human being in submission to God. He was modeling. Because Philippians chapter 2 talks about his self-emptying, where he emptied himself not of his divinity, which is an impossibility. He emptied himself of the right to operate in that divinity so that he could live out a truly human life. So in that place of humanity became totally dependent upon the Father. And so in that sense, he says, I can do nothing 
by myself. I do only what the Father wants me to do. And he says, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So the power of the Holy Spirit flowed through Jesus because he did everything to please the Father. Everything. Now, I don't understand that, okay? Because if I try and figure out how much my day is really trying to please God, I'd be kind of afraid to tell you because I don't think it'd be as big as I might want to think. But you understand, everything with Jesus was totally in wanting to please the Father. Our self-will grieves the Spirit of God, stops Him from moving. So what is He wanting? What's He looking for? Surrender. Surrender, the beauty of surrender. And yet, surrender is one of the hardest things we have to do because we're such rebels. We're control freaks. We want, we, want, we want to have the say. We want to do it our way. We want the safe little thing. And God is sometimes saying, no, I don't want it to be safe for you. I want you to step out by faith. I want you to begin to realize what I can do if you'll trust me. Grieve the Spirit through lukewarmness. And you know, the problem of lukewarmness is so great that we're told with the Laodicean church that he wanted, that, that he would vomit them out of his mouth. So it's not the aspect that God has this little problem with, you know, lukewarmness. Well, I'm not really happy with it. He says, it is so disgusting to me. It makes me sick and I, I want to throw up. That's the picture that he's given. So he's not, he's not painting this in anything that's pretty. He's painting it in very, very ugly terms. And so Paul gave us another command. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't put it out. Don't put it out in your own life, and don't put it out in the life of another. Now, if somebody's starting to get the fire in them, and they're just kind of being wildfire, I would rather have to deal with some wildfire than no fire at all. It's easier to take care of some wildfire and train it and, and teach them how to deal with the fire instead of people that are absolutely dead and want no fire. To try and get wet wood on fire is a terrible thing. Get some dry tinder and one match will put the whole thing ablaze. God's looking for some people that are thirsty after Him, wanting Him, desiring Him, that He can throw that Holy Ghost match in and the thing just go up in flames and God can begin to send out the beacon to a perishing world says, Look at what I'm doing. Look at what's going on. Look at what I can do in your life if you will but let me. They're waiting in essence for the fire to really come that will grab their attention. You know, that's part of what all these meetings are about, is to try and awaken in us a desperation for God. A desperation, a longing for Him. That's why it is good for us to experience Him. To experience him. That's why it's really good. It's not about being experienced seekers and making the experience the thing that we're looking for. But it is good to experience a real relationship with God. I know that I know that I know that I know that God is real. And there's nobody on this planet that can convince me otherwise. I have tasted, I have experienced, I have known the reality of His presence. Of course, we have the really big overarching thing that engulfs all kinds of stuff. We grieve the Spirit through, through sin. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, Verses 30 through 32, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. Now, without getting deep into this, what we need to understand is sin grieves the Holy Spirit in my life. But when He's grieved in my life, 
because he doesn't save us to be an island. He saves us to be part of a community. When he is grieved in my life because of my sin, then I affect all of you. There is no way that we can sin privately. It's an impossibility. Our sin will affect everyone in our life. It will affect the body of Christ. So it's necessary out of love's sake, not just for God that we keep a fire burning, that we keep ourselves in holy fellowship, but love for the body of Christ says, I can't let sin have rule in my, bo- in my life because it's not just going to hurt me. I'm going to hurt everybody in the church. They may not even know the sin. They may not even know what's going on. But my sin is going to grieve the Spirit of God and it's going to hinder the move of God in the church. And so we have to see how attached we really are to each other. How important it is that we make sure that we are walking like we should because it does have an influence on people. I'm not going to go through a list of sins or anything else. That's not going to do anything because we know the issues in our life. And we have to stop making excuses for them. Stop doing the blame shifting and begin to own up to them and say, God, it's time I get victory. It's time I get deliverance over this. It's time I, I cannot let this conquer me. I can't let this have a control of my life anymore. And until we get serious about really wanting to overcome our sin, we will never overcome our sin because we will continue to love our sin more than God, more than people, more than anything else. The second day of revival... And this account comes from missionary William Blair, and he wrote an article for the Korean Pentecost, a a magazine uh, that was published in, in Korea. At the Tuesday night meeting, we were aware that bad feelings existed between several of our church officers, especially between Mr. Kang and Mr. Kim. Mr. Kang confesses hatred for Mr. Kim on Monday night, but Mr. Kim was silent. As the meeting progressed, I could see Mr. Kim sitting with the elders behind the pulpit with his head down. Bowing where I sat, I asked God to help him, and bolting up, I saw him come forward. Holding to the pulpit, he made his confession. I have been guilty of fighting against God. I have been guilty of hating not only Mr. King, but Missionary Hunt. Turning to me, this would be to Missionary Hunt, Turning to me, he said, can you forgive me? Can you pray for me? I stood up and began to pray, Father, Father, but I got no further. It seemed as if the roof had lifted from the building and the Spirit of God came down from heaven in a mighty avalanche of power upon us. I fell down at Kim's side and wept and prayed as I have never prayed before. My last glimpse of the audience is photographed indelibly on my brain. Some threw themselves full length on the floor, understood with... Others stood with arms outstretched towards heaven. Every man forgot every other. Each was face to face with God. I can yet hear that fearful sound of hundreds of men pleading with God for life, for mercy. But here's the evidence. Not just the church starting to get right. Not just the aspect of people here getting saved. The cry went out over the city till the heathen were filled with fear and consternation. This took place in the capital of Penyang. 79,000 people were saved as a result of it. He's not a respecter of people. 
But he's always looking for certain things that becomes conducive. It's coming to the place of really beginning to understand the work of the Holy Spirit and letting the Holy Spirit have reign in our life, have freedom in our life. Now let's look at a little bit more, begin to move towards the prophecy itself. But before we begin to look at some of the points of the prophecy, I want to bring something out that's really important here. The anointing of God is always, always interwoven with the purposes of God. He doesn't just give His anointing because somebody says they want it. He doesn't go and have some wheel of, of fortune and it spins or falls on you, you get it if not too bad. He anoints those who have the heart of God and are starting to walk in obedience to God and willing to do the will of God. It's under the place of His will and obedience that the anointing comes in the life to accomplish the work that He calls us to. And each of us are given a different calling. One calling is not greater than the other. What God is looking for from our lives is not the name of the calling, but obedience to the call. When we stand before God, it's not that the preachers are going to have a, a greater reward than anybody else. It's not about the ministry itself. It's about obedience to what God has called us to. To be the people He called us to be. To operate in the power and the anointing that He's given us to operate in for His glory and not for ourselves. That we didn't squander our life in worthlessness and meaninglessness. But that we gave ourselves to His purpose and cause and we found the greatest joy in that place of serving Him, laying our lives down that others might know Him. My church in Detroit, we were reaching some guys in some bike clubs. And I'm not talking about these wannabes that, you know, I'm talking about these are, these are gangs. These are literal gangs, prostitution, drug dealing, violence. And uh, we were seeing some people saved from the iron coffins. So they would be like the equivalent of the hell's angels. This one guy came into the church and it was the most radical thing I ever saw in this particular way. So they called him Mexican Marty. He was a guy, I don't know if he was from Mexico, but he was of Mexican descent. And I don't know how old he was because whatever, I mean the guy had been in gangs from a young kid. And his face just was so filled with pain. And at that altar, when he gave his life to Jesus, I have never seen a face change so radically in a moment. It's like all the pain, the misery, all the sorrow, everything was just like washed away and something happened in his face. And when you look at the reality of salvation breaking a new life, you say, all I suffered to this point in trying to build this church, trying to do this work, was worth this one man. We need to become a people that allow the Holy Spirit to be God. He is God whether we like it or not, okay? You can't change that. But we can change how we respond to Him, that we allow Him to be God in our midst, where we love His presence, we court His presence, we want Him here. And it's not like, just, you know, it's just so interwoven that we can't separate the Trinity. We can look at the aspect of the Trinity, that there's only one God, but, you know, you see the, the persons within the Trinity, and yet what they do is so interwoven, it's complex, and, you know, it's just astounding. You want to be in awe of God, just try and look at the, 
at the Trinity without trying to have all the theological answers to it. And you'll just go and say, wow, this is big. I can't understand it. You're awesome, God. But we need to be people that begin to want the Holy Spirit to move. That Sunday morning you get up, whether you come to church early or not, which would be a good thing to do to come to church early for the purpose not to fellowship or drink coffee, but to seek the face of God and begin to say, God, I am so thirsty for you. Come, Lord, I need you. I need your spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Come and move, God. Move and convict. Anoint Pastor Jeff. Just, you know, you begin to cry out for the work of the Holy Spirit. And the more we court the Holy Spirit, the more we welcome him. The more he will come to us. He's waiting for us to want him enough. It's not that he has this need to be wanted, but it is a principle of how he operates that he comes to those who begin to desire him, who begin to seek him, who long for him. The early Pentecostal movement, the modern Pentecostal movement, the Azusa Street Revival began in 1906 in Los Angeles, California. And it became explosive. And Dr. Michael Brown went through in one of his books, a revival answer book, I think I mentioned this before, but uh, that he gave statistics on the explosive nature of the Pentecostal movement. That's absolutely astounding. When you start looking at the actual facts, it is astounding what God has done through Pentecost. But you find these early Pentecostals, and here's an early Pentecostal. Her name was Alice Reynolds Flower, and she was the wife of Roswell Flower that was the early Pentecostal leader early in the Assemblies of God. And this is what she had to say. We were taught to court the Spirit's moving. And through the intervening years, the urgency of this has greatly dominated my ministry. <clears throat> there were no ruts to our training, no spiritual habits. We were encouraged to expect a fresh working of God in any service, noting whichever direction the heavenly winds blew and trimming our sails accordingly. You say they did not get stuck in church as it's so easy for us to get stuck in church. They wanted His presence. They courted His presence. They wanted to show up. They wanted to just upset everything how we do it, that He might show Himself in a wonderful way. And you know, we really need to get back to that place. We need to get back to that. You see it in the in the real workings of revival. In the revival I was saved in, the, the Brownsville revival that we were a part of. We were there. That was our home church for four years. You start seeing the work of God in just wonderful, tremendous ways. And it ruins you for nominal Christianity because you've tasted of His presence and there's nothing like it. And you long for Him. You long for His nearness. And so here's the point, some of the points of this prophecy Here's what we are to be a people that begin to do. Jesus said, He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And that's who He is calling us to preach the good news to as well. Who is the poor? Is the poor the people that are financially poor? Well, yes, it can be part of that. But it's not necessarily that. The poor, I don't think, is financial. The poor here has to do with being poor in spirit. What does that mean? That we become a people that start looking for those who are weary of this world, weary of life, weary of their sin. They are wanting out. People who are in love with their sin, you're not going to do much to get them. They have to come to a place where their sin burns them so bad that they begin to ask for, for some deliverance from it. But we're to be hunting for those who are poor in spirit. Who are those out there in this community that you see the pain in their face? You see the pain in their words. You talk to them and you can sense that the word is going towards them. And they may be resisting it to a certain extent, but you know that they're accepting it to a certain extent as well. You know it's doing some work. 
And that's the ones we go to. We hunt for them. They may be poor. The reason why poor people have a better chance of being poor in spirit is they don't have the wealth and the arrogance that the rich have. And so there's something about poor. There's something about it that they don't have the, the, the wealth of this world to trust in. And they can see their neediness because many of them, especially in other parts of the world, they're living from moment to moment. They see their need. They see the reality of it. And that opens people up so much more. But we are not in any third world country right now. We're right here in Dry Ridge. Right? In Williamstown. And so we need to be hunting Hunting, looking, Holy Spirit, send me to those who are poor in spirit. Send me to those who want out. And you know, then you might have this strange thing that happens. You see, one day Jesus goes to this colonnade. And there was the pool that was there. And the pool of Bethsaida, if I remember correctly. And all these lame people gathered around because it was a pagan pool. Put there by the Romans, I believe. And... um they believed that if an angel came down and troubled the water, if you the first one in the water would be healed. And so Jesus shows up in this, in this setting and He passes by all the lame and all the disease and all the people that are around there to go to one man. One man. And healed only one man. I'll tell you what, I don't have the ability to understand how and why, but I would venture to say He went after that one man for a reason because that man even though in the misery and pain that he'd been, to, been through, he finally became poor enough in spirit to hear the truth of the gospel and receive it. He anoints us for that purpose, to go after the poor, after the needy, after the hurting. He's calling us to have his heart of compassion, and he anoints those who have his compassion and act upon his compassion to go after the hurting, after the destitute, after the people that are in need. He wants us to become a people filled with that kind of compassion that will lay our lives down, whatever it takes, that some might be saved. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is to be upon us so that we can proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now, I think this is very interesting how it relates to Jesus. Then we have to see how it relates to us with Jesus, okay? So, He was coming to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. So, what does this mean? He went up to the demoniacs. And he didn't say, in the Father's name. He went and said, out. Boom, it's done. Right? I like that kind of power. You know, the devil had no choice. Oh, when he went to Legion, the devils went and says, okay, I know we got to come out, but could we go in some pigs instead? You know, there's no arguing about whether they were going to come out. Absolute authority was speaking, and they had to obey. There was no maybe to that. So you have one who is absolutely free because he was God incarnate, that has the power to give freedom to those who are bound. What does that mean for us, though? Because none of us have absolute freedom. We are still stuck to this planet, and even in heaven will not have the freedom of God, because only God has that right. That's a whole other theological sermon, and I'm not going to go there. But uh, here's this God that will give us His authority, and if we will walk in the freedom He gives us in holiness, He'll begin to anoint us to have authority over devils. You understand? To proclaim freedom to others, I've got to walk in freedom. If I don't walk in freedom, I can't proclaim it to others. He'll not anoint me to do that. 
if I want greater authority to deal with the needs of other people, I've got to walk in the power of that authority through holiness, through relationship with Christ, through a prayer life that is rich and dynamic and powerful because I love being with Him. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Just look at this with Jesus. He goes out of His way. He did this many times, but He went out of His way to go to Jacob's well to meet this woman that had lived a sensual life to bring to her the gospel. And she wasn't just a woman that lived a sensual life. She was a Samaritan who there was great animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And he comes to this one woman. Because the misery of her life so Jesus went and brought out the truth. He says, you've had five husbands. The man you're with now, he's not your husband. I guarantee you that woman had a lot of pain. A lot of pain. I mean, she had all this baggage from all the relationships and all that went wrong and all the things and everything that people said to her and the rejection she experienced from the community and all this stuff, all this pain. She was filled with so much suffering. And Jesus came to this one woman to bind up the brokenhearted, to bind up the wounds that were so deep that nothing could help. There was nothing in this world that could heal the pain in this woman except Jesus. And you know, I mean, he loved casting out devils. He loved making the blind see the lame walk. And he loved going to these kind of people and seeing them change in a moment. Now, does it mean the woman didn't have any problems? I bet you she still had some problems and need the counseling center. Okay. <laughs> That's all. There was a lot of stuff that was there, but Jesus did some tremendous healing in a moment. A tremendous healing in a moment. Because after the healing comes discipleship. Then he came to give sight to the blind. Now, we know Jesus literally, literally did this to blind people. He gave them sight. But what was his preaching all about? What was all of his miracles about? You see, he was bringing sight to those who were spiritually blind. The miracles were to open up the eyes to people that Messiah had come, that there was a God that it was breaking into their world to bring them hope and a future. He was opening up the eyes of the people with every sermon that he preached, with every call to repentance that he gave, with every miracle that was used as a, as a, a preaching platform. So the whole thing there was to bring sight to people that are blind. And our world is blind. And there's no greater blindness than those who think that they have sight. And our world is filled with people that think they have all the answers. And we are not going to win the arguments because this is not going to be won by arguments. It's going to be won by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm not the one who can convince people. I may give them some good arguments. I may show who, why Jesus is God and what the Bible has to say and the prophecies and all the wonders of that. I could lay this all out and it still doesn't mean they're going to accept anything I have to say. But when the Holy Spirit is there and the heart is in a place of brokenness, enough that they will begin to receive the Word, then the Word enters into them and it, and it begins to upset everything that they start seeing what they never saw before. They see now that they are a sinner at war with God. They see that there's a God that truly cares and wants to break in their life and revolutionize them. 
They begin to see something they could never see before because their, their sin blinded them to this reality. We are to be the people that walk in the anointing of God to bring sight to people that are blind, to demonstrate the reality of who Jesus is. Then we are to have the anointing of God to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The prophecy in Isaiah 64 adds, and a day of vengeance. That statement, a day of vengeance, is not left off because it's not relevant for today. It's how they, they went and wrote scriptures because writing was so expensive and so tedious that they would go and quote portions of a prophecy. When they quoted a portion of a prophecy, they were actually quoting the whole thing, but for time's sake, space's sake, expense and all that, they would only use portions of it. And that's what they've done in the New Testament again and again and again in quoting the Old Testament. A year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance. You see, we have to go to a perishing world and tell them about the day of favor. What's the day of favor? He's giving you opportunity right now to repent. He's giving you opportunity right now to flee from your sin, to run into the arms of Jesus, to find true forgiveness. He's giving you opportunity. He's calling you to it. But if you reject that opportunity, if you reject this time of His call, there is a day that will eventually come upon you that will be judgment and wrath. That's the full gospel. Not telling one side of it, just about, oh, God loves you, which is great. People need to know He loves them. But we need to also tell them that His love is there to rescue from their sin. But if they reject the love of God, if they reject the message of repentance, if they reject the mercy He's given to them, there is a day of wrath. Not a message we like to minister. I don't like preaching on hell. I don't find joy in it. But out of love for people, the message must be brought because people will face the reality of hell if they don't repent in this life. And so love compels us to proclaim the truth of a God that loves and of a God that will judge those who reject that love. And we're to do it under the anointing of God. And then the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is to be upon us to comfort all who mourn. The mourning, the pain. It goes back to that whole issue of pain there, the people that are mourning. This isn't about mourning over the aspect of death. It could be. It could be part of that because everybody faces the reality of death sometime in their family and eventually their own life. So there's this place of mourning that comes from it. But I think the mourning is, is a broader thing about the sorrows of life. It ties in with the brokenhearted. And we're to be a people that can come to them and say, I have a remedy. There is a remedy to your pain. There's a remedy to the mourning that's going on, to the hopelessness in your life. There is a real answer. There is a God that really makes a difference. I need to be the messenger of it, but I also need to be the witness of it in my own life, that I reveal the reality of the hope that Jesus gives because I am living and walking in hope because He has given me true hope by dwelling inside of me. To give the comfort to those, not false comfort, but true comfort. You know what the true comfort is? That we tell them the truth. I know I said this before, but uh, I can't remember what book I read it from, but it was Mrs. William Booth, co-founder of the Salvation Army. And she says, don't ever tell a person they're a Christian. 
If the Holy Spirit hasn't told them they're a Christian, you can tell them they're a Christian and damn them to hell because now they have a false assurance and they think everything's okay. Dangerous stuff. You see, that's not our job to tell people they're Christians. It's the Holy Spirit's job to tell them they're a Christian. It is us to go to them and tell them the way of healing and that the pain and the suffering can be dealt with at the feet of Jesus. And if they come to Jesus, they will be given the assurance of salvation. They will know. They will know the moment that they are truly saved. They will feel themselves delivered from sin. They will feel themselves delivered from this whole life of nightmares that they've had to come into a fellowship with Jesus. Why will he do this? I like how it says, so that they will become oaks of righteousness for the display of his splendor. That's in Isaiah 64. That's why he wants to take people. I think this is just so beautiful. He wants to take people. And he wants to take the worst of the worst rescue them, deliver them, set them free, and then go before the world and say, look at what I've done. Look at this man. Look at this woman. Look at how we've delivered them from their sin and their bondage. Look at how they live now. Look at the love that defines them. See what I can do. And if I can do it in him or in her, I can do it in you as well. That we become the people that he can make for the display of his splendor. That he can use us. In essence, go to the world and our lives become such good, wonderful testimonies that he's not ashamed to go and say, that's my son. That's my daughter. You want to see what the faith is? Look at them. Because they're living out. That's the reality of it. Look at their lives. That's where he wants us. That's what he wants in our life, that kind of faith. Excuse me, it's been Isaiah, not 64, 61. So on the video... Uh, I'm correcting it now, okay? (laughs) Isaiah 61, and uh, verse 4 says, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Do you understand what he's saying? That the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is to be upon us so that we can bring life to the cities that have been ruined? And this isn't necessarily talking about cities that have been ruined physically from war and whatever but cities that have been ruined from sin. Ruined from sin. That's what He wants us to do, become people that are bringing the hope of salvation under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. That we are given a baptism of the Holy Spirit that we might have power to be able to operate in signs and wonders that God can do through us what He wants us to do. We should be hungering for Pentecost in our life. We should be hungering for the fullness of it, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because we want to see God do those things through us. We want, yes, that heavenly language that we can communicate with God in such a wonderful way, but we want the benefits that come out of that, of His anointing and power, that we could be used to bring life to a dying world. I want to close with this story. The revival in Korea had been going on for a little bit. I mean, Pen Yang had just been, I mean, it was just phenomenal what God did in that, in that major city. And that's in North Korea right now. And so they started talking among themselves, going... We can't keep this. What God is doing with us, we can't keep this. We have to give it away. And, and, and we want to send out a couple of missionaries to China. Okay, they're oppressors. People that had brutalized them. Now they're saying, we want to go to China. We want to reach them with the gospel. 
But I got, you got to understand, the people in Korea at this time, they were dirt poor. They were just, I mean, they didn't have anything. So they figured what they would do is they'd have a convention. And at the convention, they would take all what little money that they could gather up, and they would ask for a couple of volunteers, and they would take the volunteers and put the money in their hands and send them on the journey to Shantung, China. And that's where they would spend the rest of their life. They would go there to reach, to reach the people with the gospel or die in the process. So this is what the whole convention was about. It's just packed full. Then the time came, and they took with the offering whatever meat, whatever little bit it was. And then they say, okay, we're looking for two volunteers, two people that will go into China, never to come home. You will not see your family again. You're going to lay your life down. You may die in bringing them the gospel, but I'm sending you to China. Anybody who's willing to accept this call, I want you to stand up. One man stands up. And then another man stands up. And then another, and another, and another, and another, and another. And soon so many people were standing up that they began to scream at the top of their lungs, Send me! Send me! Send me! They didn't have to beg for somebody to come and do the work of ministry. People were begging to do it. Why? Because they had been revolutionized by the gospel. The reality of the love of God bursting, breaking into their lives, setting a holy fire in them. And they wanted a way to release that, to touch hurting souls. My, how we need that in the American church. What might that do in your prayer life if you got up every morning and says, Send me, send me, send me, send me, send me, send me. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Lord, you want a New Testament church. God, I know that, I know that, I know that, I know that. You want us to be true, spirit-filled people that are operating in the Pentecostal power as what they did 2,000 years ago. You want the power of signs and wonders to operate through your people. There is no, absolutely not one single verse anywhere in your Bible that says you stopped doing miracles. No place. Those who say that are abusing the Word of God, and it is a lie. Lord, you are still a miracle-working God, and the greatest testimony of this miracle is my own life and the other lives of those here that are truly born again. Miracles, how you take, take just, just rank sinners and you transform their lives. You adopt them as sons and daughters. But God, I'm asking for a holy fire to begin to burn in your church and your people here in this community that they begin to see the surrounding counties here as mission fields and they would begin to long to somehow, how can I tell others? How can I get to others? How can I proclaim who you are? And Lord, they begin to cry out day after day, God, I need your anointing. I need your anointing. Send me. Send me to the poor in spirit. Send me to those who are needy. Send me to the brokenhearted, oh God. I've got the truth. I've got the message. I've got the answer living Living inside of me, oh God, may I not keep it inside. May I give that away, oh God. Lord, may you set a fire in the hearts of your people and may evidence of it be newborn babes. Jesus, 
babies are noisy things, God. <laughs> They're messy things. But God, they are joy and they are life to a church, oh God. It's good when we have little human babies, but God, we want newborn babes in Christ as well. They may be all messy with all kinds of problems, but God, it's so good for a church to have fresh blood, to have some newborn babes in Christ that are just wanting to learn how to walk with Jesus. God, bring in some that are wanting your salvation, God. We are pleading for the lost to be saved. And God, bring us to the place where we are aching, yearning for the anointing. Anointing for the power of Pentecost. Where we are wanting to be truly Spirit-filled believers. Operating in the power of the Holy Spirit with signs and wonders. God, that you'd begin to be a awaken a people that will operate in faith and be used for your glory and your namesake. And Lord, I'm asking right now if there's anybody here that is not a true follower of Jesus. The message I've been preaching has been to the church. It's not been to the lost. But dear God, they have heard the gospel enough to know that you are wanting to rescue them from their sin. That you're wanting to deliver them from the bondage that they have been in. You are wanting to, to rescue them so they do not have to spend an eternity in hell. And God, I'm asking that if there's anybody here that's backslid or is not walking with you, never given your life, their life to you, God, that they would want to run home, that they would realize that you are a real, true God that is wanting to rescue them and you have such life to give to them if they would but yield and surrender. We ask this in your precious name.